0: Thanks for tuning in to Nuestra Palabra, Latino Writers Having Their Say on 90.1 FM KPFT. This is Tony Diaz. Today, we have a program that brings you a national perspective, but also brings you material and art in your own backyard, especially if you're in City Council J. On the national side, we're welcoming back to the program a dear friend, John Valadez. He's a filmmaker whose works you probably have in your collection or you'll probably be watching during Hispanic Heritage Month or in a classroom or in a community center. We're happy to be talking about his new film, American Exile. We get a sneak peek because that won't be released just yet. But I promise you, Houston's going to feel the love right before it's released nationally. And we're going to make sure to include it in our ultimate Hispanic Heritage Month observations that are coming up. And speaking of Nuestra Palabra's ultimate Hispanic Heritage Month observations, the second half of the show, we'll talk to Sandra Rodriguez, who is the Nuestra Palabra community representative for City Council J. She's gotten deeply involved. We're going to tell you what it's looking like in her neck of the woods. On top of it, don't feel jealous. (laughs) We're organizing 16 events, one for every single city council district during Hispanic Heritage Month. And of course, it's going to feature art, cultura, History, and we'll be also in the process touching on issues that affect COVID 19 precautions, the census, civic engagement. And this is a bigger deal than ever because not only has the shutdown affected all the arts community, but our arts community was further behind to begin with. Additionally, Latinos have been disproportionately affected by the COVID 19 epidemic. And then to make matters worse, The annual Fiestas Patrias Parade, which is in its 50th year, has been canceled. And that's a parade we always look forward to during Hispanic Heritage Month. So we're going to do something to uplift our spirits, but at the same time, give teachers material to use in the classroom. And also, we know parents are now teachers too. You'll be able to get some materials to be proud, get excited, and celebrate Hispanic Heritage Month. We'll keep you posted. Of course, you can get up to date on any of our websites, nuestrapalabra.org, librotraficante.com, or tonydiaz.net. I want to thank our crew for donating their cultural capital to bring this program to you. Leti Lopez, Rodrigo Bravo, who mixes the show remotely, Claudia Solero Alfonso, Jesse Aranda Comer, who is our summer intern through Rice University, Antonio Diaz, who is also our summer intern, Laurie Flores, Stefano Cavaza, and El Castillo. President of Lulet Council 60. The Nuestra Palabra radio show is archived at the University of Houston Digital Archives. Our hard copy archives are kept at the Houston Public Library Special Collections Hispanic Archives. I'm happy to join you every Tuesday from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. for Nuestra Palabra, Latino Writers Having Their Say here on 90.1 FM KPFT. Also on Tuesdays, I host Latino Politics and News. I also get to see you on the political talk show What's Your Point? I'm FOX 26 Houston. Thank you for tuning in. Let's talk art and culture. Thanks for tuning in to Nuestra Palabra. Latino writers having their say, this is Tony Diaz, and we're very happy to welcome back to the airwaves. He's from media. He's nationally and internationally known for his films. We're so proud to call him a friend and an ally. We're going to check in with him about some of his major films and a big project coming up. Say hi to our dear friend, John Valadez. Hey, welcome back to Nuestra Palabra, my friend.
1: Hey, thanks for having me, man. Thank you so much.
0: And we wanna let folks know that you are a director now of the documentary film programs at Michigan State University. Congrats, are we calling you there? Are we calling you in Michigan?
1: Um, Yeah, I'm the director of the documentary film program at Michigan State, but uh, I still keep making films for national television, so filmmaker first, but also I guess now a professor.
0: Lucky students. So you're going to raise the enrollment over there. (laughs) It's going to be heading north. Also, you are a Peabody Award-winning filmmaker with two National Emmy nominations. You've written and directed a dozen feature-length documentary films for primetime national broadcasts on PBS and CNN over the past 20 years. Those works have garnered top prizes at film festivals from San Francisco to Chicago, to Mumbai. They've been broadcast across the U.S., Canada, and Europe. That's the kind of border crossing that we love. And they've been featured at major museums and cultural institutions, including the Hirshhorn Museum, the Museum of Modern Art, of course, called MOMA, the Lincoln Center, the National Gallery of Art. You have a history of making films that tackle diverse... Often controversial subjects related to race, power, and bringing these critical stories to a national audience, especially about our cultura and history. We're going to touch on some of those past works, but we are catching up with you because your latest film is called American Exile. It's going to air nationally on PBS next year. I've been privileged to get a sneak preview, and it is really powerful. The film chronicles the lives of two brothers, both decorated Chicano combat veterans who volunteered and fought in Vietnam. Fifty years later, they're being deported by the Trump administration. The brothers soon learn they are part of a larger national phenomenon, the mass deportation of military veterans almost all people of color powerful first of all tell us the status of american exile
1: so uh right now i've been working well we're in post-production we're almost done
0: i'm working with
1: the composer on original music and we're just finishing up clearing some rights and doing the sound design and the final picture work but uh we should be done in a matter of well probably weeks actually, um, and, then, and, and then it goes to PBS and, and that sort of thing. So I'm really looking forward to screening this and, and getting it out there. I think it's, uh, it's timely, it's riveting, it's important, and it also reveals a very, very, very dark aspect of what's going on here. It's like deporting US military veterans who fought for this country.
0: The main characters who you follow, they're so compelling. They are articulate. They are like family members. How did you find them? Oh, my God. So, you know, a a few years ago, I had finished a film for PBS called
1: The Longoria Affair about a racist incident that happened in South Texas um, right after World War II. And these two guys came up to me after the screening, uh, two older gentlemen, and they said, uh, listen, we have a story for you. And, you know, I don't know. I mean, I hear that a lot. A lot of people say, hey, you should make a film about this. I was kind of hungry, actually. So I said, hey, man, after, after the screening, do you guys want to grab a bite to eat? And they're like, okay. So, so then we went out and they just told me their story. And I honestly didn't believe them. I thought, this is, this is so crazy. There's no way that two brothers who are combat vets who fought in Vietnam, who are highly decorated, who came back wounded, both physically and psychologically, there's no way that 50 years later they're going to be deported. That's just I, That just blew my mind. So I, I told them, I said, listen, um, what are you guys doing tomorrow? They said, you know, we're around. And I said, well, you know, can I swing by? They were living together at the time. And I said, can I just swing by your house and we can talk some more? And as soon as I got there the next morning, I said, hey, do you have your, uh, your, uh, your discharge papers and they pulled out their discharge papers from Vietnam, called a DD 214, and and sure enough, it was on there. And so I said, "Well, do you have any photographs of you guys in Vietnam?" And they showed me their photo, you know, these photographs of them. And I was like, "Oh God!" And I was like, "Well, do you have? It says here that you're decorated. Do you have any of these decorations that it says in your DD 214 that you received?" And they pulled them out, and I was like, "Oh my God!" The plot thickens. These guys are for real. So, so we began to develop a relationship, and I began to find out more and more about them. And, it, you know, that's one of the things that I look for. If someone tells me something, and I think to myself, what? Then you, and it turns out to be true. <laughs> then you're, then you're on to something. Right. So, yes, yeah, so that's kind of how it began.
0: What, what I love about that, though, is that that's why I hold you in high regard, not just because you're broadcasting nationally, not because of the awards. Obviously, that is admirable. But what I really think highly about you is that you are in the community and you take our community cultural capital and you keep this link. You present it in a very high aesthetic true to our community, but in also ways that people people can get it. And I think that's really what comes across in this film. These are Americans of the highest order. They're from our community. It really is jaw-dropping unbelievable what's going on. I don't want to give away too much from the story, so I'm going to defer to what you care to re- re- reveal. But can you tell folks, too, how big an issue this is and also what some of these infractions were decades past that are now causing so much strife in these war heroes lives
1: yeah so so the way that this kind of functions for veterans is very it's it's kind of a a confluence of events um you know you have to go back to the 1990s um, to the Clinton presidency, and um, you know Clinton was under a lot of pressure. I don't know if you remember Governor Wilson in California, very anti-immigrant yeah um, and and it was you know, and then they passed in California they uh, they ended affirmative action at the UC system and there, there was just a lot of the borders were pretty porous, and a lot of people were were complaining. And it was actually kind of a dangerous situation in, in a lot of places. Um but uh, but Clinton passed an Immigration and Reform Act in 1996, and uh, what it did is it lowered the bar for deportation. So, um, uh, it, it, yeah, and it took away judges judicial discretion. And the idea was is if somebody committed a crime, well, then then they can easily be deported. Um, but what happened over time was 9/11. And after 9-11, that's when that 1996 law became kind of infused with um, a shot of adrenaline. And not only did the Department of Homeland Security, which was created after 9-11, begin to enforce um, the 96 Immigration Act vigorously, but what they also did is they lowered the bar to what became a deportable offense. So, 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 if you were um, a green card holder, right, um, and you were caught fishing without a license, well, now that's deportable.
0: That's terrible. That they're going to so kick
1: terrible. you. They're going to kick you out of the country. Or, or if you, um, you know, or if you, you know, so any misdemeanor, you know, uh, just about could now land you in in, in deportation court. And just to put it in context, misdemeanors are so common in the United States that if US citizens were subject to the same punishment, um, about a third of all Americans would be deported. About 30% of the population of the United States has committed some kind of infraction. So it's just like, it's just holding people to this almost impossible bar for just you know doing you know getting caught doing minor things decades I mean, ago even yeah yeah oh and it's retroactive so so, so 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 if you were caught fishing without a license in 1999 then you know 20 years later you could you could be deported for it you know
0: so man and and I want folks to know that you also take us through a powerful journey. There's highs, there's lows, you get us fired up, you get us happy, you get us depressed. It is very, very cathartic also. And again, a real testament to the power of these veterans to navigate past trauma and confront these issues that should be there during what should be their golden years. Anything I missed that you can reveal? Was there one moment where it really hit home? Because there's a lot of very poignant acts that I don't want to give away, but what, what really tugged at your heart as you shot this?
1: Oh my God, there are so many sequences in the film. I, I guess the thing to to be clear about is that this is not an issue film, I mean, it is. I mean, these are real issues that, that, that are absolutely devastating, you know, in people's lives and are devastating to uh, Latino families all across the country. Um, but they, they're, 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 at its heart, they're, 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 it's a story of two brothers and, and and what they went through and how they found a way to fight back and how they find a way to... Um, take on, um, you know, Goliath, um, even when you don't have many resources, you know, yourself. Um, there's there's one scene where one of the brothers, who has PTSD, really bad. I mean, he um, all his front teeth were knocked out when he ran into a VC booby trap in Vietnam. He was shot in the stomach. Um, it's just, he has Agent Orange, you know, which is all over his body and is slowly killing him. And, um, and he was so stressed out and having so many flashbacks because of the deportation order and fear that ICE would come and, you know, knock down his door in the middle of the night and drag him away that, uh, that he decides to just go to Mexico under his own volition you know, just to have a sense of safety and freedom. And, but he decided to do one thing um, that symbolically kind of set him free, I think, or this is the way I interpret it, is he brought all of his medals with him. And after he crosses over the, the border, he goes to the banks of the Rio Grande on the, uh, uh, on the Mexican side, and, uh, and he throws his medals away throws him back to the United States. Mm. And, you know, those were earned with his blood and his flesh, you know, and his, and his, and his youth torn from him. And it's not that he's anti-American. He's, as, he's, you know, he's kind of the ultimate patriot. But it's just that on some level he had to maintain his own agency and his own dignity over his own life and not be held captive by the symbolic trinkets of an empire that used him and doesn't want him. And it was the only way, I think, for him to feel settled um, and, uh, you know, complete and move forward with his life. And I, I know that that must have been like such a difficult, difficult moment. It was a difficult moment to film, you know, it's a
0: hard thing. I really appreciate you sharing it. More than that, I appreciate you capturing that because that's the part that I was going to in my head. I, It was really poignant, powerful, that that scene. And I think people need to watch it again to get the whole context. That is the magic of this. And you're right, it's not an issue film, but it is a very powerful potent tale of the human struggle and 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 the condition of of some of our gente let's talk about getting this to houston now because the other reason i wanted to call you is not just to give folks an update but you are an entire hispanic heritage month industry (laughs) you've got got enough content that could keep people (laughs) you know in programming for the entire month so let's start by talking about Um, We have a project called the Ultimate Hispanic Heritage Month, and we want to work on doing a special screening of American Exile before it's aired nationally. So explain the two differences between a special airing for a special audience here in Houston, we hope during our Hispanic ultimate Hispanic Heritage Month observation that we're planning and we're working with every single city Houston uh, we're working with every single Houston City Council member so dear listeners we'll let you know who is working with us and who has shut the door on us but tell us the difference between a private screening or a special screening and then the national PBS screening which goes to millions of people
1: Yeah so so, so a primetime national broadcast on PBS means that um, that a film is going to air during prime time, which is usually between like 7 and 10 p.m. on a weeknight, uh, you know, Monday through Friday. Um, and, and that it airs on all 350 public television stations the same night at the same time. And that the show is competing with the highest rated programs from all the other networks um you know it you know in the television
0: Dang. universe when you put so it that way <laughs>
1: so it's the most competitive uh you know time you're, you're you're up against the the shows that have the highest ratings okay um and you know and so 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 i know that we're going to have a slot but we just don't know you know exactly you know when that slot is going to be um and that's you know, so PBS has the, has the broadcast television rights to the show, and I'm, and I'm proud of my association, you know, with, with, with PBS. Um, but what we, what we can also do, and, and, and what I've done in the past is, you know, I've done, uh, you know, traveled, we've done screenings, you know, at different universities, community centers, with different organizations prior to broadcast. We are in the middle of a global plague right now, So having live in-person screenings, you know, probably Mm -hmm. not a good idea to do in this moment. Um, But as an alternative, it's certainly possible to do the equivalent of an online screening for, you you know, a limited number of, you know, people who sign in. So that it's not open to the public, but it's maybe open to a certain constituency, i.e., you know, uh, Latino community groups in Houston or something. Ay, um, or, palabra. What's up, palabra? Right, right, right or, or 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 students at a particular college or something like that. So kind of a, a you know you know a closed online screening i guess is maybe how to describe that but that's but that's certainly possible and it's you know something i would love to do because you know i think that you, you know the, the this film while it's made while the film is made for um, everybody um, uh, you know i do think that it is particularly important that uh, that that la raza you know know and understand and and be exposed to this because this is this is, this is our experience in America, or at least, you know, some of our family or brothers or sisters or aunts or uncles, you know, who are going through this. And it's just so important to be, you know, to be uh, fired up and, and to be informed.
0: And I also want to let our listeners, well, I want to remind them that we're not just a show that talks about topics that any show can do. We are community organizers, and I want them to hear how it takes the foresight of an artist to have that built in so that we can experience that community cultural capital together. So that's one thing that I want folks to keep an eye out for. Again, we have Nuestra Palabra community representatives in every single city council district. We're going to let you know exactly which city council representatives work with us or get in our way to make sure that American Exile is part of the ultimate Hispanic Heritage Month observations in Houston. However, I also want to give folks some definite ways to experience your art. So I am very happy that Lone Star College Houston North will be screening Latino American, especially the episode called Pride and Prejudice. That's going to be September 6th. 1 p.m. and that'll be through the latin american student organization they were very proud to have brought you live and in person seems like a hundred years ago we could do things like that (laughs) (laughs) you know Uh, so we're happy that we can screen the film our library bought the film we're also finalizing a possible discussion with you and i bring all that up because then people can also go to your website to to set up similar projects like that and i want people to know that this is going on and they can participate through like i said uh lone star college houston north give folks your website where they too can team up with you on sharing some of this programming
1: Okay, so here's a little bit of a problem. Um, you know, our website is down <laughs> at the moment because uh, gotcha. we're revamping it to add in American Exile content mm. to it. So um, I'm going to have to, you know. Fair <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, we're going to have to be in contact and, you know, that sort of thing. But. Perfect. uh but, but 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 the new and improved version will be will be up soon and 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 I'll let you know. It,
0: the, okay. it will be it will be worth it though. And of course, in the meantime, folks, we'll keep you apprised of how you can engage through Lone Star College Houston North and Latin American Student Organization during Hispanic Heritage Month. Additionally, I will be teaching Mexican American literature at Lone Star College Houston North beginning October. We're actually on six week cycle, so we're call I'm sorry, eight week cycle. So we call that eight weeks two. But I mention it because I'm using the textbook Hecho en Tejas, the anthology of Texas Mexican Literature, edited by Dagoberto Gilb. And they've got a great piece in there about the Longoria Affair, Three Rivers, the role of Tejanos in there, Lyndon B. Johnson's role, the telegram from Lyndon B. Johnson's to, you know, sticking up for the Longoria family. But that also goes back to your film, The Longoria Affair. So take us back a little bit to that project, how it ties in. And I really want teachers or parents to know that this is another great way to include Very authentic cultural programming into their curriculum, and whatever excuse you need—Hispanic Heritage Month, Mexican literature, or the Mexican history course—that is now being taught in different high schools in Texas. So, take us back to the Longoria Fair.
1: Well, you know, let me let me just mention one thing briefly, uh, and I'll I'll try to be quick about this, but I think it's really important because it's kind of one of the re—it's really the reason why I make films um, about the chicano latino experience and it's that and it's that you know when, when, when i was growing up or when i was in high school college and all of this um i yeah, there just wasn't very much about how mexican americans built this nation mm. how we were part of the story and um and i knew instinctively that that was a lie and it, you know, and so, so, so all of these films, whether it's the Longoria Affair or the Latino American series or American Exile or Latin Music USA, all of this stuff that, you know, that I do for national broadcast, it's not, these are not only documents and stories that chronicle our contribution to the American story, um, for us to know. But it's also to preserve those stories, to archive that history so that somebody in 10, 20, 50, 100, 200, 500 years from now, can look back and say, "Yeah, you know what? Uh, 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 Chicanos, Latinos, uh, you know, played a critical role in defining what uh, the American experience would be. And here's the the the, the proof of our value and our um, our right to be here. Right? We've earned it." Mm. Um, not it's not just that we were necessarily born here or immigrated here. Uh, in addition, we earned it because we made this nation and, and continue to make this nation a better place for our very, from our very presence here. makes us a more just and equitable and free, society and we've done that generation after generation
0: and and i want to Um, pause right there only because i really want people to appreciate that because you have the intelligence to create films without having that corazón behind it that cariño mm -hmm. behind it but you still do and i think that's really what has the impact be it any of the works i mentioned students get fired up because that sensibility that heart that concern is there and it's dramatized. And again, I want to stress at the highest aesthetic possible at our time. So I congratulate you for that sentiment. And it means a lot to all of us. I didn't even interrupt you, but I had to throw that in.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. So the, the Longoria Fair, right? I mean, you know, uh, the three rivers, Texas, you know, uh, just after World War II, Felix Longoria, a guy from this small little dinky town south of San Antonio, not far from Corpus Christi, volunteers, is sent off to fight the Japanese while in the Philippines he's killed, he's hit with some kind of RPG, it blows his body literally in half. The body parts are sent back after the war, and the widow goes to try to have some kind of funeral service at the only funeral parlor in the county, which is in his hometown. And the, the, the Anglo owner, proprietor, says, we don't allow Mexicans. He wasn't even, you know, you know, you know he wasn't even considered American even though he was a citizen of Texas in the United States, and he wore the uniform, and he paid the ultimate price in battle fighting fascism. Okay? So anyway, so, so she's denied, and, uh, and that, you know, her sister calls this local doctor who's also a veteran, just came back from the European theater fighting the Nazis. A guy named uh, Hector Garcia, and Doctor Garcia, mm-hmm. you know, goes on the goes on the war, path. and he, you know, and he contacts then Senator, Junior Senator from Texas, uh, Lyndon Johnson, and Lyndon Johnson is absolutely outraged because Johnson had also been in the war; he had served in the Navy, and he saw this as an affront. To you know, to all Americans, it had, to him. It had nothing to do with race. It had to do with this is an American GI, and you know, over you know, I'm not going to allow this to happen in my district, in my state, and uh, you know, he eventually uh, you know brings the family up to Washington D.C. and has private Felix Longoria buried at Arlington National Cemetery with full military honors. Um, As far as we know, although I don't know exactly how you would verify this, but as far as we know, the first Mexican-American to be buried at Arlington. Um, But what that did is it solidified a relationship between Dr. Garcia and Lyndon Johnson that would last for decades and would help usher in uh, the modern era of American civil rights. Um, But... Through the Longoria affair and through Dr. Garcia, we see how Mexican Americans were organizing and fighting uh, for civil rights, while at the same time African Americans were fighting on a different front. So it's kind of like the other, you know, the other half of the civil rights story. Um, that we don't really ever hear about. but I, you know, but I was you know fortunate enough and privileged enough to be able to, to, to chronicle that.
0: Well, and it's a very powerful bookend too, because I remember when I first heard about that. it, it also is unbelievable. Just like American exile, at some moments you're like, this can't be happening. The difference is that it's happening now versus this was, you know, years back, but very powerful companion pieces that I think really round out a great class. L- let's close out by asking you, okay, you're wrapping up American Exile. You've got this great body of work. Are you already thinking of the next film?
1: Oh, boy, I have so many ideas. <laughs> I, I, you know, I don't really know what's going to come next. I'm not really sure. Uh, but I got a lot of possibilities out there. I, 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 I think, you know, for me is I got to get American exile. I got to get it out there. It's got to become part of the um, civic uh, discourse, the civic conversation in this country. Because if you can, if you can do this to, uh, to veterans who fought in combat, oh my God, what fate awaits the rest of us? Mm. That's truly, truly frightening. And when I first heard about American exile, I I swear to God, the first thing that popped into my mind was, oh my God, Dr. Garcia would be all over this.
2: Mm.
0: Well, it looks like John Valadez is making a call out to Nuestra Palabra, community representatives and Libro Traficantes, Mm -hmm. to work harder and stay fired up. And that's exactly what your work does. It has been a pleasure talking to John Valadez Award winning filmmaker, all community, all heart, and ready to launch his latest film, American Exile. Thank you so much for calling in and for all that you do, John. Uh-huh. Muchas gracias, si se puede. Tuning into Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say. We are ready to organize the ultimate Hispanic Heritage Month. That's why we want to take a pause and speak with the Nuestra Palabra community representative for City Council J, Sandra Rodriguez. Welcome to the radio show, Sandra.
2: Hi, buenas noches. How are you? Thank you for the invitation.
0: No, by all means, we appreciate you helping out with this, and I want to remind folks that. You are a first-generation native Houstonian, daughter of immigrant parents with strong roots in southwest Houston. She is a lifelong resident of the Gulfton neighborhood, Gulfton, with two decades of experience in public service, focusing in areas of community engagement, revitalization, educating our youth, and improving the well-being of vulnerable communities. You are a product of Houston ISD schools within District J, where you earned your bachelor's degree in human services at Springfield College as a working single mother. Your environment inspired you to create a different life for yourself and greater opportunities for your community. That's fantastic. And as a teenager, you witnessed your community plagued by gangs and violence, encouraging you to join the mayor's anti-gang office to address safety in the neighborhood. Today, you serve as the President of the Gulfton Super Neighborhood Council and Program Manager for the City of Houston's Department of Bureau, Youth, and Adolescent Health. Your personal life experience, grassroots work, and leadership roles within the city have provided you with a deep understanding of our communities. You're committed to creating equitable, sustainable solutions to impactful, meaningful change among all Houstonians, lifelong residents, and newcomers. And that gives you the expertise as well as demonstrates how your heart is there with the community. What's your earliest recollections of getting involved with the community in your area?
2: I grew up in Southwest Houston. In the 80s, our neighborhood began changing. The oil industry crashed. And so an influx of immigrants came into the community. And so our neighborhood is very diverse. A lot of Latinos from Central America, Mexico, along with immigrants from around the world, just the diversity, the culture, it's rich in that. And art can play a big role in sharing our stories. I'm sure that a lot of community members, a lot of our undocumented and our in, in the shadows, living in the shadows, but there's so much richness, richness in Southwest Houston and, and art can bring that out.
0: Now, a lot of times the dialogue in Houston focuses on the larger Latino and historical Latino districts like City Council H and City Council I. Additionally, when we talk about sustainable and equitable funding for the arts, it's often focused on Mecca or Talento with the Houston Theater. Of course, not enough is focused on, on both of those areas. However, we don't really talk enough about the need for cultural centers, art centers, in City Council, Jay. We know there's a lot of talent. What's it look like on the ground for places to exhibit art, to cultivate an artistic experience for the people in the community in that part of town?
2: Honestly, there really isn't an area for Latino art in Southwest Houston. You know, as you're talking, I'm thinking of of locations, the places that we can utilize. Plaza Americas, which used to be Sharpstown Mall, is a, a dedicated spot in Southwest Houston that a lot of Latinos visit. It's like a market and shopping and eating and even to, to have a good time and party and listen to music. So it's a, it's a centralized location within District J that I think would be a great opportunity for us to bring some artwork through the Complete Communities and, and partners like the Department of Neighborhood, City of Houston, and CHAT, Culture of Health Advancing Together. Through Complete Communities, we were able to, to bring in some mural artwork in Gulfton. Just because it's a complete community, it would be great to see more artwork and murals throughout District J. I would like to see statues or or some other display of artwork on the streets, in different shopping centers, areas where families congregate, at the parks, uh, to really display the diversity, Latinos, and, and tell our stories. So Las Americas would be a great location, just off the top of my head, and parks because our families, all our families gather at the parks for just going out for a walk, for a soccer game. You know, soccer is huge here in Houston and Southwest Houston. All you see is the soccer field.
0: I think that also goes back to the whole metaphor of a center because that's always the struggle. And, of course, we as organizers, for nuestra palabra, we're always going to incorporate writers, visual art, musician, and speakers, and we're always happy to go out into the community in different areas, and we've performed in all kinds of different settings. However, at the end of the day, it is important to cultivate a space that people know to go to on a regular basis. Tell us a little bit about the, the makeup of the community because it became its own district recently, correct?
2: That is correct. So it was redistricted in 2011. So our first council member was Mike Lester. And and now we have council member Edward Pollard. We have about 180,000 people that live in a district and about 66% of them are Latinos. Sixty-six percent of the district is Latino, and wow. I would, yeah, yeah, and it was redistricted for the purpose of having uh, Latino representation. But unfortunately, we are not very involved with getting out and and voting, and uh, and we have a large percentage of the community, Latino community, that is undocumented, but they have children, um, you know, they have young adults now, and a lot of them are you a citizens? and they're eligible to vote It's just educating the community to be engaged, but they've been living in the shadows for a long time in fear. Even now with census and COVID playing a big role. I was out just last week and I've been calling property managers just to assess the needs and hear what's going on with census and COVID. And, and they say, our families are scared. One property manager said I visited our property in the last few years maybe two three times a year is it last year too many to count where they just stand outside and just people are coming home from work and and up so this is the reality this is going on in our neighborhoods and and people don't want to get engaged they don't want to complete the census they don't want to get tested and they don't Want to access governmental services.
0: I think what's also fascinating as we organize our Ultimate Hispanic Heritage Month observation, we are organizing 16 events, one in every geographical city council district, and then five at large, citywide for the at large positions. It is fascinating to see that every single city council district is a Latino district. Of course, Jay has a higher percentage of. Latino population than others. But as you broke down, it seems as in the redistricting, it was picked because it may be a younger electorate versus how the other districts were parceled out. You could look at City Council E, which is not thought of as a Latino district, 40% Latino. City Council A, which is not thought of as a Latino district, 56% Latino. And the issue then becomes how do we get our communities engaged, of course we think one way is through art and culture as you mentioned earlier but it takes our own community members to be able to get that and and then to have permanent permanent ways for them to to experience it now you ran for office in the district tell us some of the challenges there of reaching people so for example if you're running the city council a You still have to campaign in parts that overlap Aldine, and I say that because Aldine is unincorporated, so you don't have as many traditional neighborhoods as if you go into the Heights, et cetera. What were some of the challenges of getting to the pockets of voting community members?
2: District J is about 80% renter-occupied. And so a lot of our voters come from the single-family home community. Yes, we have voters in the renter community, but 87% of our community is renter. That doesn't mean that everybody is in an apartment complex, an apartment unit, but a large concentration does come from the apartment community, which, you know, one, one six months you're here, next six months you're somewhere else, so the community changes. But they all... You know, like for myself, I am a renter, I and I've been in the district my entire life. And some of the challenges were, one, um, exposure within the entire district, uh, two, maybe it was um, the single-family home community. A lot of my work throughout the, the last 20 years has been in the apartment complexes and in a renter uh renter communities, which is different because the the demographic changes constantly in single-family home communities. It does not, it's more stable and people are there for for decades um, uh, in District J. And so that was one of the main challenges, fundraising or raising the the funds that I needed while still working full-time, a full-time job with the city and, you know, still serving as the president for the Golden and Super Neighborhood Council and still as a single mom, uh, fundraising could have been a challenge, too, which it was. Uh, being out in the community, going to community meetings. Uh, but I think that the main challenge was not being able to reach the voters that probably are registered to vote, just not excited about getting out to vote for a local election. What I would like to do is really reach out to voters, new voters, people who have never voted, maybe they are registered, and showing them how important it is to get involved in local elections and how it affects them directly at home today, unlike the presidential. Yes, those are important, extremely important they don't manage the trash pickup, or fixing the potholes, or affordable quality, affordable housing, or green space in my neighborhood. Immediate uh, things that we can work on in the neighborhood, in the district, and so getting getting people out to vote. You know, for the runoff, it was about four thousand people out of one hundred and eighty thousand people. Was, was that needed. how many people
0: voted for the in the runoff? 4, in
2: the runoff. For about 4,000,
0: yes. I want to add a few other barriers because as we've been going around the city, it's very difficult for folks to know which city council district they're in. They're so gerrymandered. Um, e is really a work of art <laughs> because it's like a blob above and to the right of Houston connected by a little line and then a, a blob <laughs> to the left and below Houston and then some people think because they live a mile from someone they might be in the same district or they're in the same zip code that's not the case I think additionally things are being really uh, exacerbated because of COVID-19 and when people try and get outreach for the census you've had all these different attempts to stifle participation you had President Trump try and get imposed on the census questions if you're a citizen or not, which I think has chilled it. Now it's harder for people to go out. And what you really touched on earlier was folks are working nine to five before COVID. They're happy to have jobs now, but really juggling to make sure that they can pay the rent, put food on the table. They don't have time to go to city council meetings, which might be during working hours. And how do you keep track of general elections, runoff elections, primaries, uh, and so forth? It seems that it's got to be time to get through all those different layers of different ways to just not make it easier for folks to vote.
2: Right. And so in my experience working here for so long, you know, our community's priorities and and I speak for myself and for my family when, you know, you're dealing with domestic abuse in the home, not being able to afford groceries or just trying to meet your basic needs, you know, voting, getting engaged and civically engaged is at the very bottom of your list. And that's if, if it even makes your list. You're trying to survive. You're on you know, we talk about fight and flight, you know, we were just always on survival mode. And so that contributes to health and, and you know, health issues and just so much that goes on in these areas. You know, your, our, our district median income is about 34000 but we have 43% of our community that makes under 25000 under 25,000 and these are essential workers you know mom my mom is a housekeeper so she's an essential worker Uh, a lot of my neighbors you know there. I just spoke to somebody today whose hours have been cut and and now they're they're needing more work and trying to figure out what can I do to make sure that I make my rent that I buy my groceries and that my kids have what they need to start school um These are the issues, daily issues that go on in in our neighborhoods. And so civic engagement is probably not even on the list. And how do we help them understand that, you know, it's it's important. The other point that I also want to make is that when we have newcomers that become citizens, we are expected that, okay, now you're a citizen. You should know how to vote. You should know how to use the machine. You should know you know, who is the, your district, your state representative, your congressperson, but they don't. So we just, they swear in, we register them to vote, now go vote. It's intimidating. I remember the first time that I started voting, it's intimidating. You go in there, you're clueless, you know one, you didn't grow up around that, so this is new. I can only imagine a newcomer, a new citizen, how they must feel. And so we need to do better at educating them as soon as they become a U.S. citizen. How do we provide that education, that training, so they feel comfortable once they go and and cast their ballot?
0: And to put it in context, one thing that I've discovered during the course of this campaign is that even our own base of folks from Nuestra Palabra who are bilingual, aware, they're conscious, some of them aren't aware of exactly which city council district they're in, who their city council representative is. And a lot of folks don't understand that there's over a dozen levels of elected offices and it's not that easy to find out. So that's one thing that we ask people to do as they get involved is that to go to whorepresentsme.com, which can tell you something about who your state reps are, But to find out who your Harris County Commissioner is, you probably have to call Harris County. And since we're calling uh, right now uh, different offices, we're also reminding people if you want to find out who your city council representative is, you can call 311, you can give your address, and they'll look it up. It's not that efficient, but there's not really a more (laughs) efficient way to get that done times every level of office. So it is a bit daunting as you say and it takes time to navigate all that. It's kind of like grammar. You know, once you've learned grammar, everyone becomes a grammar snob. Like, well, why don't you use a period (laughs) after a complete (laughs) sentence? But in the course of it, we forget that we all had to go through those steps.
2: Well let's let's
0: get people fired up. So I'm excited that we're gonna be basically melting through all these barriers through art and culture. We've done this before through Nuestra Palabra. It's grassroots organizing. There's a lot of great voices. We look forward to working with some of the visual artists. In the past, we've worked with Maria Duran from the Central American Collective who brought some great visual artists to our attention. We've got some great Central American writers. We're going to, of course, remind folks that we'll have a live event on the ground that'll be respecting all recommendations from the CDC for social distancing and COVID-19 but then we're also going to amplify it with the other 15 Nuestra Palabra chapters and then of course a remote component what would you like to see happen during Hispanic Heritage Month not just this year too it always blows my mind that people are shocked that it's Hispanic Heritage Month again (laughs) but as we build on this year to year what would you like to see happen?
2: I would like to see our Latino voices amplified throughout the city of Houston that, you know, growing up here when I would look for, I always wanted to dance uh, Mexican folkloric, you know, uh, that always, um, I was always wanted to join a group and in my neighborhood, nothing. But I remember growing up, we used to go to the north side or, and, and Mecca, and, and all of that, you know, and and I couldn't travel to the other side of town to take these classes. And it would be great to have a center in, in Southwest Houston where our youth, and even our seniors, I've seen seniors dancing folkloric, uh, put some folkloric groups together here in Southwest Houston. We just don't have a location. Baker Ripley is great. They've supported. I joined a Bolivian folkloric dance group just A few years ago, and we practiced in the parking lot because we had nowhere to go. I'm sure that that we can bring that to Southwest Houston and to many parts of the city and and not just to one area of the city where, like you said, there have been generations and generations of Latinos and that's there and it's known there, but we are everywhere and so. I want us to share our stories, to highlight our struggles and our successes through artwork. And it would be great to have a traveling tour around the city, visiting different districts and and highlighting our culture. And you'll see how different each district is.
0: Love it. And what I what I'm really excited about is that, of course, this is going to go into our archives. The Nuestra Palabra digital archives are kept at the University of Houston Digital Archives, but Later on, when those centers exist in your part of town, people are going to listen to this and say, wow, you know, that generation of leaders got together and started putting the granito de arena juntitos, juntitos, juntitos and made it happen, especially because we're looking at things differently. So I do want to remind folks we are setting up a meeting with your city council representative for Jay, which is uh, Mr. Pollard. And we'll be meeting with every single city council representative. We're going to give folks a report on who's working with us. I hope everyone will work with us, but we'll let you know if they do or they don't. Uh, additionally, I, I think what you're t- describing is fantastic and that have that voice that will cross over and meet us on our own community terms as well. Fantastic. Any closing thoughts as we convene pre Hispanic Heritage Month and as we convene pre Ultimate Hispanic Heritage Month observations?
2: Well, Tony, just want to say thank you. I am really excited about what you have started and everything you've been working on to make this a reality to highlight not just one side of the city and Latino community, but all of latinos in every district and planting that seed so that it can grow from there and i'm sure you'll see a lot of energy and excitement from each district and you'll see a lot of different arts coming out of these neighborhoods
0: fantastic well you got me fired up hermana i can't wait i'm excited
2: i'm excited
0: really a pleasure to chat with sandra rodriguez who is our new Nuestra Palabra, Community Representative for City Council J. Thank you so much for all that you do.
2: Gracias, Sunny.